Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. We always hire people for their diversity, but then once they are hired, we expect them all to think the same and not just the same, but the same way the boss thinks. When those three come together, fun, fear, and focus, you can reach flow. Very often people reach the best ideas when they're in the shower or driving in their car. And that's because you're not focused on the problem. Don't change the people, change the workplace. There's a place for everyone find that one thing you can do to change the situation, but there's always something you can do. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 42 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Frederica Fabricius. Hi, Frederica. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Hasha. Nice to meet you. So before we begin, I wanted to thank all the followers of the podcast and the YouTube channel. The podcast is close to 5,000 downloads. And a special shout out to those in the US where the podcast has now been downloaded in 42 states. Please subscribe, like, and share if you enjoy the content. Now back to the show. Fredrika is a neuroscientist and trailblazer in the field of neuroleadership. Her brain-based leadership programs have transformed how Fortune 500 executives think, innovate, and navigate change. She is a thought leader and keynote speaker known for engaging audiences at a number of well-known global organizations. Ever since she can remember, Frederica has been curious about the way the brain works and why people behave the way they do. That's why she chose to become a neuroscientist. An alumna of McKinsey & Company and the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research, she serves on the prestigious German Academy of Science and Engineering. She is the author of the award-winning book, The Leading Brain, and her new book is A Brain-Friendly Workplace, Why Talented People Quit and How to Get Them to Stay, which will be published on the 11th of October. Frederica is fluent in six languages and lives with her husband and five children in Heidelberg, Germany. Welcome, Frederica. Thank you. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the arts, Frederica. Is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share with the audience? And and this is not a test of coolness. (laughs) Well, there's one book that really made my day the other day, and it was by, unfortunately, for an international audience, this is more my push to get this guy translated. His name is Carsten Dosse. He's a German author. Let me get his book over here, actually. So you can see it here. He has written this book. It's called like Mindful Murdering or something like that. And it's just so funny. And I love books. You know, I could be here like recommending the newest business book or something. But really, when I read, I love to read something that makes me laugh out loud, if possible. And his, you know, it used to be a trilogy, but now there are four books. So I'm really not sure how to call that. And, you know, he makes me laugh on every single page. So that's my shout out to him. If he ever listens to this, I'm a fan. 
Oh, cool. No, no. Well, hopefully he, <laughs> he is listening. And it's funny. Um, I remember reading um, Bernard Schlink, The Reader. I love that book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever come across it. And yeah. my other, uh, the book I really enjoyed in German, not that I read in German, was um, Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever come across that. Yeah. But just yeah, lo- love those books. Yeah, yeah. I, I read a lot of English books, but this one, you know, has not been translated. And here it's been a major bestseller. And it's just like he's making fun of all the modern, let's say, trends that we have, you know, how people always think that the same things are cool at the same time. We tend to be a bit like in a group mode on, you know, the side guys, so to say. And it's really funny. Yeah, and I, I think that whole thing about group thing, people like to sort of follow the crowd. And I suppose maybe going back to our, the way we evolved, if you weren't part of the crowd, then you were isolated. So maybe is that part of our uh, evolution or the way things are yeah. pretty good? Do you think? Yeah, and it's even something I talk about in my book, uh, because I think it's so important. We always hire people for their diversity, but then once they are hired, we expect them all to think the same. <laughs> And not just the same, but the same way the boss thinks. I think that's the number one rule in most organizations. It's like follow the boss thinking. And, you know, this has an evolutionary advantage because we used to survive in small groups of maybe 150 people. And if you didn't fit in, that was basically a death sentence. But there was a funny experiment where they asked people to trust or to to look at the faces of strangers and to rate how much they would trust that stranger. And people made their ratings looking at those pictures. And then the researchers came back to them and they said, oh, other people said that this person is not so trustworthy. And then people came back and kind of changed their opinions said, oh yeah, I I didn't think so either. And so the funny thing is that in 50% of the trials, people changed their opinions to fit in with a majority of people and their brains really lit up in pleasure when they agreed. And there was like an error signals when there was a disagreement. So I think we are really wired to agree and that's great to get along. But if you really want innovation, creativity, the best solutions, that's really not the best way. So I'm, I'm showing ways in which you can really cut through that group thinking in, in organizations and get more into group flow where you really build on each other ideas rather than just following this streamlined um, mass opinion. Oh, yeah. No, I, I just love that, Frederica. And I will definitely touch on that later in the interview. But mm-hmm. I, I'm just so excited to have you on the show and really honored because I've been fascinated by neuroscience for a number of years since attending some lectures by neuroscientists in London called Dr. Gabby Tolakita. And what mm-hmm. I like about it is, is, is the insights that you can get into understanding why we do the things that we do. And, and also, I think once you understand that, you can then you know, understand how you, you act and then you can try and uh, bring about some change. But obviously, change takes time and you have to be self-aware. But, so, but how, how did you become interested in neuroscience, Frederica? I'd like to love to hear your sort of backstory. I have always been interested in people. Actually, when I was a child, I was interested mostly in animals, but like living creatures. And I've always wanted to understand why do these two people get along? Why do those two hate each other? And psychology can give a lot of those answers on a behavioral level, but not really on why. Like, is it something with some neurotransmitters to some brain region deactivated? So when I lived in Italy, I did some research in a neuro 
um, psychology laboratory. And that's when I realized that all the new breakthroughs happen actually in neuroscience and not so much in psychology anymore. It's just on a deeper level. And that's when I really course corrected. And then I decided to specialize in it. And so it's always been a deep curiosity. Um, But then, of course, it's also very helpful in order to make people's lives better. So the good thing is it satisfies my curiosity, but at the same time, it can also help me really improve people's lives. And that's what's really satisfactory to me in the end. Brilliant. And and I just love the point that you make about that course correction, because I think, especially with careers, people sometimes start down one path and they think, oh, we've put in five years or six years, we've got to carry on doing this. And it's, I think if you're self-aware and you sort of understand the way the world is evolving, then you can make those you know, clever decisions like you did. And yeah, and I agree with you, I think with, with neuroscience, because there is that science to it, you can really understand the chemicals um, and what's going on in the body. So you can really get some nice insights. So I, I just love what you're saying. So after university, you started working as a management consultant. Uh, how did you find that? Obviously, I think there's some long hours there. <laughs> and why did you decide to start your own business? And actually, one funny thing from your book, uh, I was re- reading that bit when you went to some sort of um, training session with that lady, and she was trying <laughs> to get you to shake hands. And and for me, I, I hate it when people have a hard handshake. So the thing that you were doing would really have annoyed me, you know, <laughs> would have a really strong grip. But anyway, can you maybe talk about life as a management consultant? Well, it definitely was a bizarre chapter in my life because I'm a trained neuropsychologist, so I've never heard of McKinsey before. Actually, what happened is I went out clubbing <laughs> when I worked in brain research. I'm serious. I went out. I was so frustrated spending my life with like just monkeys in a laboratory. And I was like, oh, I need to get out of here. And I went clubbing and I went to this bar with all the bankers. I think it was called like bankers and brokers after work or something. (laughs) And then this one banker guy, he said, you would be perfect for McKinsey. And I said, Mac, what? What are you talking about? And he said, yeah, you travel the world. You do different things. And then I was like, whatever gets me out of this laboratory. And so I applied and then suddenly I was there. And um, it was a bit of a wake up call for me because, you know, I had studied how the brain works best, how like sleep improves your cognition, how you can build your best brain, so to say. And then I realized that the way people were working was really contrary to this it was really the opposite. Long hours, nonstop flights. I was waking up in a different country every morning. Sometimes I didn't even know where I was. It was just like, whatever. I just go to the lobby, meet my colleagues. They know where to go. Like It doesn't matter whether we're in Rome or Paris <laughs> because I don't get to see it anyhow. So who cares? Like As long as there's food maybe at lunch. The funny thing was that many of my colleagues, they were not as stressed out as I was. I was really exhausted on the weekends. Ever since then, I had this hypothesis that they had different neurosignatures than I have. So to talk about neurosignatures, you know, we all have certain neurotransmitters that really shape our behaviors and they can make you more stress resistant or less stress resistant, or, you know, they can shape your interests, your talents, your passions, the way you like to work with your introvert, extrovert. And I just realized that all my colleagues, they were like constantly running marathons, rock climbing. And I realized they were all sensation seekers. So sensation seekers are people who have a very active dopamine neurosignatures and they love stress. They love change. And so I didn't quite fit in because 
I reached my best performance at a lower stress level. And so I really felt a bit like a fish out of water. And I, I quit after two years. And then I actually combined the neuroscience world with a business world, which was perfect for me. You know, I don't think I could be doing the work I do today if I hadn't really seen how people work. I wouldn't in my wildest dreams would have imagined that, you know, you, that it would really be like that. So it's good for me to have that awareness of what my leaders really go through on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, no, I, I just love that, Friedrike. And then I, I suppose from my, my background, I've worked for over 15 years in the big four accounting firms and, and banking. Um, and I, I, don't, mm -hmm. I didn't de deal with the stress that you had to, because it's funny, I stood well clear of management consulting. And right at the start of my career, a couple of people said, oh, this is what they do. And I thought, oh, that's really not for me. And I, and I think it's really trying to understand what you're like. And yeah, as you're saying, uh, how you deal with stress, um, how you react, and then trying to find out what best suits your talents but I, I love the way you talk about this whole um neurodiversity and i think that leads us very nicely onto your book the the brain friendly workplace and i'd love reading reading it thank you so much for sending me an advanced copy so can you give a, a brief overview of the book and and maybe talk about the neuro gap and how also to nurture neurodiversity in the workplace Sure. Um, so if we look at today's workplace, I think so many people are stressed out, just as many are bored. Companies are launching all these initiatives to retain talent, to attract talent, or to combat burnout, or even to increase diversity in the workplace. And my hunch is, and this is also based on numbers in most cases, that these initiatives are not really working. Because if you look at the numbers, they're not improving. It's not like we see, oh, they launched this initiative and now people are so much better. Very often it's a one-day training initiative and then they check that box and then it's on to business as usual. And I was thinking we need real change in the workplace. We need to not change the people, but the workplace. So what this means is that I was thinking, how should the workplace look like so that people really thrive there, so that people can reach their peak performance, so that people can optimize well-being, and so that we can drive natural diversity. So I'm more thinking of diversity of thought in the sense that there's different brains and people have different thinking styles. So I was thinking, how can we really optimize that? And then I really sat down and I had like a 10-step plan of how you could do that. And it's both for the leader who wants to achieve change in the organization, but it's also for Every person who works and who maybe has a tech toxic boss or who doesn't have the optimal conditions. So it helps you also to make small changes to your direct work environment so that even if everybody around you is working in a not very brain-friendly way, you can create your own brain-friendly workplace. And I, I just love love that summary. And, and one, yeah, there are so many good things that I picked up from the book, and we'll, we'll just go through a few of them. But I just love this whole idea about peak performance and when you can get into that flow state. And you talk about fun, fear, and focus, and that leads to flow. Um, would you like to expand on that, Friedrika? Yeah, so the flow state you know, it's not only very joyful, it's also highly productive. So when people get into flow, they can be up to five times more productive. That's crazy if you think about it. You could just work one day and achieve what other people achieve in five days if you're really getting into that. 
And so and at the same time, it's really joyful. It's addictive, actually. People who get into flow often, they come back and go back. You, you can think of rock climbers or surfers, you know, who catch the perfect wave, but you can actually also reach flow in the workplace. And it happens when we have just the right mix of chemicals in our brains. And those are dopamine or adrenaline, acetylcholine. I think that's a mouthful to remember. So I, I called it fun, fear, and focus. When you have fun at work, that your brain releases dopamine. When you have just the right level of fear, not too much, not too little, your brain releases noradrenaline that gives you like an energy kick. And when you're fully focused, your brain releases acetylcholine. So when those three come together, fun, fear, and focus, you can reach flow. That's basically it. And I think what's important about it is it, it takes luck out of the equation. So many people think, oh, flow is fun, but it just happens. It's like a rainbow. You enjoy it when you see it, but you can't make the rainbow happen. You know, you just, of course, you could maybe create some rain and some sunshine <laughs> and then, but, you know, most people don't have those tools around. So it gives you the control. It gives you the power because if you can navigate fun, free and focus, flow is a guarantee, I would say. So you can really put yourself out there when you need it. I think many athletes do that. They really train with mental coaches, but in the business world, people don't do much to strategically put them into flow. And I think that's a mistake. No, I, I just love that point. And this whole idea of, you know, don't wait for it to happen. There are things that you can do. Um, and, you know, I think I think it's a bit like creativity um, that you know, people are saying, oh, we want to uh, wait for uh, like this spark of genius or that guy or, uh, or lady is really creative. But actually what I find it's, it's really about putting the hard work in, really getting deep into a subject. So you have a mastery. And then when you're offline, uh, the great ideas come to you. I mean, what are your thoughts, uh, Frederica? And that's exactly it. I think in order to be creative, you need to first focus on the problem intensely and really understand it, work through it, maybe day and night, really like crunch your way through the problem. And then you really need to take your mind off the problem because in order to reach an aha insight, your brain needs silence and solitude. Very often people reach their best ideas when they're in the shower or driving in their car. And that's because you're not focused on the problem. So you really need to create that downtime when you take your mind off the problem. And then we know that in the brain, we first have these alpha waves that come up. And then afterwards, there's this gamma inside effect and gamma waves in the brain are very quick oscillations in the brain in the 50, 60 hertz range. Those don't occur very often. You don't see them in a brain on a frequent basis. And they happen when your brain literally connects the dot. So that's when, for example, brain areas that usually don't communicate with each other suddenly make a connection. And that actually happens subconsciously. And I think that's another thing in the business world. We always think of everything is measurable, you know, with some kind of test and, and everything has to be so rational. But in reality, most of what our brains do happens, you know, when we're sleeping, when we're not thinking, when we're daydreaming, when we're mind wandering. And I think we need to cultivate that more. You know, I'm a mom. So I'm, you know, when I see that kids have schedules that are too full, I'm always thinking that kills creativity because you need that time when nobody tells you what to do. Nobody prepares some, 
activity for you that's good for your brain or something like that. You need to let them play on their own without disturbing them. And that's when they get their most creative. And that's not just for children. That's true for adults as well. Yeah, no, I just love that point. And I think that's that whole idea of just having time for yourself. And I think you mentioned either in your book or one of your talks that uh, one of your children, they like to go sort of play in their room on their own. And I think that whole idea of just being on your own, being comfortable with your thoughts and letting the, the ideas come to you um, is, is a very powerful thing. So, yeah, no, I, I just love that, Fredrika. I think that concept of being on your own with your thoughts is so important, even in the workplace. And then if you look at the reality of it, open space offices, you know, there was just a recent study that shows that it really kills productivity. Or we have people who walk in on you all the time, or you're supposed to leave your door open in order to be an inclusive boss. And what this really does is it kills focus, it kills productivity, it kills innovation, because you never have a moment to yourself. And I think we need to give people that space back and also allow a little bit of silence and solitude and not having people chat into your ears. And I also think we spend too much time in meetings. So, and then there's also this idea that everything has to be group work. I understand that collaboration is great. I mean, hey, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I even have a chapter on that. But still, if I look at schools, when I look through a school curriculum and there's reading that we encourage teamwork all the time, I'm thinking like poor kids, like can they never just do something on their own for a second? Our brains need that. And so I have a method that I called, it's actually very simple, a meeting of one. You should put something in your calendar, really block it. And take that as seriously as having a meeting with other people where you meet with yourself, where nobody gets to interrupt you. That's really where you can focus and get in that deep work. No, I, I just love that. And I think, yeah, it, it, it's almost figuring out, say, if you're at work or even you're in your personal life, it's just figuring out how you can almost say no to people in a nice way and just and and just say almost these are my boundaries. And uh, are there any uh, particular neuroscience insights into that whole idea of how to say no and maybe justifying why you say no um, to your boss or other people? I think it's a very valuable skill and it's kind of opposing our natural tendencies. Because if you look at the brain, as we said in the beginning, we want to be in line with other people. We want to be part of a community. Our brains are very social. So telling somebody no is scary because that people could stop liking us. The person could get offended. It's tricky. It's very hard. And so well, in, in the book, I have I recommend a technique that's like, yes, no, yes. But I even think it can be simpler than that. I think you should really have your priorities straight. You can't please everyone. There's no way in the world that you can keep everyone around you happy and liking you. I think that's just a reality we need to face. So what I personally do, for example, I try to keep my husband happy. You know, I try to keep my kids happy. You know, they get pretty much what they want from me as long as it's unreasonable. So know, who is more important, the kids or the husband? Well, <laughs> or should you not say? I should not answer this question. No, but um, <laughs> I would say they're equally important. They ask me this all the time. Do you like dad more than us? But 
It's tricky because you want to keep everyone happy and they are not always on the same agenda. <laughs> so like, for example, my husband likes an organized home and my kids really like to create <laughs> chaos. So who do I, you know? Their kids. So, yeah, exactly. But, you know, but I don't try to please everyone. And I, I think there's only limited room for people in our lives. I mean, unless you're one of these lucky people who have like a big, warm you know, family with 50 aunts and cousins and, and they're all living in the area. I mean, that's amazing. That's how people used to live. But if you look at the way most people live these days in Western societies, it's almost impossible to have so many friends and also a career and also kids. So I think it's about saying yes to a few things and saying no to a lot more and to be living with the consequences that this will also lead to the fact that some people will be disappointed. I'm always, you know, trying to one tip maybe that I can give is to do this at the very beginning. So I have a, like these 10 commandments for great relationships. And one of them is get things right in the beginning. Many people try to please in the beginning and then later on, they say, oh, by the way, this is something I don't like. And that's often a recipe for disaster. So what I do is I try to set expectations at the very beginning. I remember um, a company where I used to work and people were always traveling together in consulting. And they always had beer together in the evening. They were like sitting at the bar and drinking and chatting. And to me, that's like the worst way to end a day. Like for me, it's like I would pay not to be there. Okay. I really, really don't enjoy that. So at the very first work trip with this new boss and these new colleagues, I said no at the very first evening. I said, listen, in the evening, I need my alone time. I don't want to be sitting in some bar. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to read my book. I'm going to go to bed and I don't want to see any of you. And of course, they were all like a bit shocked, but this kind of resolved that problem for me. Usually people, when they start a new job, they would on the first evening join the team. And then how do you get out of it later? Like, do you go after three weeks and say, by the way, I hate drinking beer in the evening? Like it doesn't work that way. So I try to always manage expectations the moment the first chance I get, because then people get less offended because then they understand it's not about them. It's about me. So I, yeah, I like to use that breakup line as well. So yeah, it's about getting things right in the beginning. You know, I, I love that point because it is so easy that if you start a new job, you'll, you'll get into the, the work culture, whatever that is. But yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And, and even at the start of any sort of work relationship, I think, you, you have to try and say, look, this is who I am. Uh, don't give a, a rose-tinted uh, version of who you are. And, and be honest, because then, as you're saying, trying to change later on down the line is 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 difficult. But I do think those, um, and, and actually I did look at your Ten Commandments, and I, I, I have great team relationships, and yeah, just love them. And I think that if, if you, um, especially at the start of the relationship, if you can make sure that, you get on with that person because it's very difficult if if you if you mess things up at the beginning, trying to get it back is is yeah it's impossible sometimes. Um, so yeah, yeah, trying to be um you're on point right from the beginning. But but I also like th this point you made about um fairness uh, because mm -hmm. I think that is so important. Um, and, and maybe could you give a another thought from the Ten Commandments rather than going through all ten of them? Of course. So regarding fairness, you know how all you are the expert on this. Economic theories always predict that people <laughs> maximize profit. 
I guess you must have learned that at some point in sure, your sure. studies. Yeah. They should have put that in your brain early on <laughs> as an economist, you know, like with this background. So that's actually not true. People don't maximize profit. People maximize fairness. So people often even pay money to punish an unfair player, which is contra the theory. You know, why do diverse um, divorce lawyers make so much money? People spend money to like take away stuff from the other person. Um, people spend money to punish somebody else, for example, which is not in their own best interest. In theory, you should save that money and just let it go. But we're so wired to maximize fairness. And that, again, goes back to that evolutionary background that when you're in a small group of people, if you allow one person to play not by the rules, it quickly transpires into the entire group. And then you have a lot of people not playing by the rules. So you need to punish those unfair players. And I think that's deeply wired. There's also an interesting gender um, difference when it comes to that, that has been found. It has been found that especially in men, when they got to give electroshocks to an unfair player, the pleasure centers in their brain lit up. So um there seems to be a link between testosterone and perceived fairness. And very often it's the man who in a society makes sure that there's fairness and rules and, and this is implemented. Just a little fun fact about this. I think women care about fairness too, but there were some interesting gender differences also in the brain scanners when people did these experiments of, you know, giving people money and sharing money and looking who behaves fairly and who doesn't and which brain areas light up. And, and you could truly see that for men, you know, if they could hurt somebody who didn't play by the rules, that was even pleasure. While for women, it was still uncomfortable when they saw somebody getting hurt. And, and I, I think that's a really interesting point because when you look at leadership, it's so important that the leader is fair. I mean, look, sure, you'll get on with certain people slightly better than the other. But I think in a team, if you see that somebody is getting an easy ride or they get, they're getting promoted without performing, that's just a recipe for disaster. And, and, and you know, when, when you're looking at you know, with your book, you know, why good people leave, it's the people who can leave who do leave because they have options. And sometimes it's the people who don't have the options who stay. So yeah, as a leader, you should be trying to encourage the best people to stay, even if you don't get on with them, because ultimately then that's better for the company and for the team. But that doesn't always happen, does it, uh, Friedrika? No, it doesn't. And there's also some funny research that shows that at the top, we have um, narcissist, psychopath people with a Machiavellian background, so to say, a personality structure. So actually, the people who get promoted very often are the people who score highly on the dark triad. I find that interesting because, you know, the people who get promoted are those who talk the most, who self-promote the most, who, who are maybe most present in the office and those who work remotely get passed on on that promotion. So, I think we need to, you know, we have all these criteria in place when it comes to diversity, but we're not really looking at diversity of thought or diversity of, of different brains. And we tend to promote, I would say, the wrong kind of leaders. Not, I'm not saying all of them, but there are a lot of toxic leaders out there because they are the ones who will impress on others. And I think we need to have an awareness that those who speak 
more softly and those that are maybe more introverted can actually be the ones who add value in a team, even if they don't spend their time self-promoting. So I think that is also an, a relevant point from my book. So, so in terms of, say, the introverts, and it's funny because I was looking at uh, in your book and you said that you're uh, an outgoing introvert. Is that is that correct? Right, yeah. right. And, and it's funny, I'm, I'm very similar to that as well because people think I'm an extrovert, but I would say I'm more of an introvert, but an outgoing introvert. So say for you know, introverts, outgoing introverts like ourselves, Frederica, or even non-outgoing introverts, how can they survive or thrive in the workplace? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to communicate that to the people around you and to then really work in line with your neurosignature and not against it. You know, I, I've seen so many tips and articles with like, if you're an introvert, here's how you can learn to network. I don't want to network. Okay. <laughs> Give me a break. Like, I don't, I don't want to learn it. I want to be successful without networking. Is that possible? I think it is. Okay. Well, you, so, you've done it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't go to any uh, dinners. I never network. I, I just, wow, if I get an invitation, that's the quickest thing that, you know, I get burned up in a fire in my home. So <laughs> I really don't want to go. So I think rather than telling people how to fit in, we should create more diversity. So for example, for me as a speaker, it's challenging to travel. It's challenging to have these after speech dinners that I don't want to go to necessarily, but I love delivering my speeches. I love my work. I love connecting with people. Um, it's more, I don't like the small talk, the shallow small talk. So I don't do it, period. Like, why do I have to do it? Just because I'm the speaker doesn't mean that sitting next to me at dinner is so much fun. People think it would be fun, but then they may, will realize it's not. Oh, Frederica, I'm, I'm, having, I'm having the best time. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> we are not having dinner. Uh, you know, I just want to enjoy my food. Um, so I think it's about understanding where you add value and to really um, see where your strengths are. For me, I do a lot of work virtually. That's amazing for me. I love it. I'm here alone in my studio and yet I get to connect to a lot of people. I, I, I like being connected to people, but I don't necessarily want to sit next to them in the airplane and chat for an hour. Yeah. So I, I skipped that part. So I think it's about identifying your strength and your weaknesses and to shape your work environment so it fits you rather than always having to adapt. We know that adaptation and having to fit in drains our cognitive resources. And so many times, going back to the example we had in the beginning with the handshake, what that was, was that they were training as women to be more assertive and more confident and like leaning in. And so we had to shake hands and be strong and, and speak in a lower voice. So they were actually training us <laughs> to speak in a low voice and not to be, not to smile, to give commands. And to me, I mean, this works for sure. But do I want to do that? Like, do I want to sit in a meeting and think, oh, okay, I need to lower my voice. Like, do I want to waste my cognitive resources on changing my natural behavior? I don't think so. So it goes back to the same principle. I think don't change the people, change the workplace. There's a place for everyone. The diversity we have in our brains is there for a reason. It's good that we're different. If everybody was an extrovert, there would be no books written. There would be no scientists making breakthrough 
discoveries. Well, maybe some of them, but you know, I'm just saying there are different traits and different strengths associated with introversion that we wouldn't benefit from if everybody was just outgoing and social and a butterfly. And I suppose it's also at the company level or the leader level, you have to look at, um, say, the, uh, the the compensation uh, uh, culture, the reward culture, how people get promoted. And see, so I was speaking to uh, another guest about this, and sometimes normally, traditionally, to get uh, more money, you need to get promoted uh, into leadership positions. And some people really shouldn't be leaders. They're much better doing their deep work. You know, it's like the deep um, knowledge person in legal stuff or tax or whatever it is. They should just be doing that, not leading. But you need to make sure that they're getting uh, recognized and and rewarded and promoted, but not necessarily into a, a leadership position. So, yeah, and I just love the points that you're making there. But, but sort of moving on to sort of uh, the working environment, sometimes people are in these situations where they're not enjoying their jobs, they've got a boss who um, they don't get on with. And I think in, in that sort of long-term uh, sort of situation where things aren't working well, um, you have this long-term stress. And I think uh, something like cortisol builds up. Now, can you maybe talk a little bit, bit about sort of cortisol? And also, I saw from one of your talks that uh, if you have autonomy or you create autonomy, then this can help to deal with, say, difficult situations. Um, and I just love that whole idea about, you know, taking control back, because a lot of times people think that they're powerless, but actually there are these small things that we can do. Oh, I think that's so important. So stress When we talk about stress, we need to understand that long-term stress is bad. Short stress is good for us. So anything below 30 minutes is great for us. It helps us to think better. It boosts our immune system. It actually gives us that kick of stress hormones. We need a little bit of cortisol in the morning to be awake and not sluggish. So a little bit of stress is good. And you can actually boost your ability to deal with stressors by exposing yourself to short-term stress. So for example, taking a cold shower, taking an ice bath, a short, you know, intense hit training, all these things actually make your brain and body better. So stress per se is not bad. The problem starts when stress becomes chronic and uncontrollable, when it never stops. We have to understand that anything that goes on for longer than 30 minutes is already bad for us. So there's several ways you can go. I would say the point you mentioned is the most important one. We need to take our power back. There was research in mice, a very classical study where they showed that the mice who received electroshocks without being able to turn them off died, while those who had a little lever and could turn it off survived just fine with the electroshocks. So it weren't the electroshocks per se that killed the mice. It was the fact that they couldn't turn it off. And so we need to find that lever in our lives. We need to find that possibility to reduce stressors. And that can be very hard because if you live with a toxic person, if your boss is mean to you, if politicians do things you don't want them to do, that can become hard. And so you need to find that one thing you can do to change the situation. That can be something small. It can be something big, but there's always something you can do. And may it be changing your attitude maybe changing your thoughts, maybe saying no to something. So we need to always ask ourselves, what is one thing I can do right now to improve the situation? And then we need to act on it rather than putting ourselves into the position of a victim. 
So it's very hard, but that mindset is life-changing to always think like, okay, this situation sucks. Okay, what can I do about it? Rather than just going on and on and on complaining about it, always think of like, how can you get yourself out of it? No, I, I just love that. And, and and that's really ties in with a lot of the stuff I that's been talked about on the podcast. So say with the boss situation, sometimes you you just can't change that. But what you can do is say, okay, in six months or a year's time, I'm going to leave this uh, organization, find a new job, and then reverse engineer and say, look, what are the small steps I need to do to get from here to there? Because I think you know sometimes if you're mentally not in a good space and you're just being worn down, uh, if you go and uh, interview, uh, you're just not going to come across well. So you really have to get that um, sense of control uh, agency back. Uh, and then hopefully that will help right. you uh, change. I mean, what do you think, Friedrika? Yeah, I think that's the first step. And then so, so getting that power back and trying to fix the situation. And then I think one important thought that's maybe easier to implement is the fact that body and brain are connected. So if you change your body, your brain will follow. So if you put your body in a more positive state and reduce stress hormones, your brain will follow up. So for example, you know, take a walk, really prioritize your sleep and really try to get a good sleep routine get yourself exposed to sunlight in the morning. So I always say like sports, sleep, snacks, and sunlight are the four S that you can use to boost your body and whatever boosts your body will boost your brain. So if you, let's say your boss is being rude to you and you're really upset, you can either sit at your desk and dwell on it or you can get up and maybe take a walk for 10 minutes. I can tell you that the 10 minute walk is already going to change your physiology and your stress hormones, and it's going to give you a boost. So there are body-based techniques that I would recommend first. And then of course, there are also brain-based techniques to combat stress. Those are more difficult to, to learn. So my recommendation is always like fix the situation first, get your power back, then try some body-based techniques. And then the, the brain-based ones are techniques that usually have to be practiced over a longer period to work. So they will not work in the moment necessarily. They work if you practice a little bit every day, like meditation, breathing exercises. This is not something that if you've never done before, that will like kick in and solve your problem. That's something that you could train a little bit every day. And then when that stressor hits, you get into that positive state of mind and then you can quickly condition yourself to change your physiology. No, so and I, those three things combined will really make you more resilient. No, brilliant. I, I just love those thoughts. And I think moving on from that, I think the, the, the really nice point you made about that is the, say the brain-based techniques is that these are things that aren't going to happen overnight. You have to put the hard work in and uh, try and make it a habit. But actually once it's a habit, it just becomes uh, a lot easier, doesn't it? And I think anything you can make a habit, my understanding is that that takes up less energy from your brain. Is that correct, Frederica? Totally. It, yeah. it takes up less energy, but even more so, you know, you don't have to engage your prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex should be used for higher level cognitive tasks. So it frees up your resources. Your subconscious can take care of your habits. And then even though you know, maybe your brain is working hard and achieving those, you won't feel it because it's just happening automatically, like your heart beating or like your breathing. And so it's good to delegate those tasks to your subconscious 
so that you don't have to think about it anymore, so that you don't have to involve, you know, higher executive functions such as willpower or delay of gratification. I think that's that's really smart. And building a good routine is something that many people try, but many people fail with it as well. So I think it's good to have a little bit of an understanding of how habit change works and how you can make it happen. And I think too many people punish themselves when they try a habit change. So for example, they cut out the chocolate, but then they eat celery sticks instead. I mean, who enjoys those celery sticks? <laughs> I mean, maybe after a while you recondition yourselves, <laughs> but why don't you take something that also tastes great instead? So people deprive themselves of dopamine when they, they always have these like ambitious goals. And then they say, I will never eat a piece of chocolate ever again. And then they go on this soup cabbage diet, do it for two days. And then you're just so deprived of any positive emotions that you bounce back. I think we need to be more forgiving and make sure that whatever habits we're building, we're also building that dopamine into it. So these quick wins, there's a rewarding feeling. It shouldn't feel like a chore. It should be something joyful. Um, and that goes back to the fun, fear, and focus model. We need to understand that fun is not just nice to have. It actually helps our brain to build better habits. So whenever you try to change a habit, try to make it as pleasant as possible. I just love that thought. And say, if you look at some you know, famous people who've done well in their lives, um, you look at Steve Jobs, he always wore the same stuff, um, you know, that turtleneck T-shirt and the jeans. Uh, Obama was always wearing the black suits. Um, and I think it's a whole idea of if there are these activities which aren't that important, uh, like what am I going to have for lunch? try and like reduce the I'm not not that you have to but I think sometimes uh if you can create these habits it does give you more time as you're saying for your prefrontal con cortex to really uh think about the really important um decision making things um is that correct Frederica? Totally correct. I always envy Steve Jobs for his wardrobe or even these tech guys like Mark Zuckerberg. I always wonder if I could pull it off as a woman, like it would be so liberating, you know, to just have like white t-shirts or <laughs> I, I'm going to try it someday. You should, um, do, you should do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it really, you know, frees up mental resources and then you can th use those for something else rather than having to think, oh, do these pants fit with this shirt, you know? It's a, I mean, of course, if you enjoy it, then it's good. But if you just see it as a chore, something you have to do, then, you know, try to get rid of it, try to simplify it or just buy things that naturally fit with each other. No, totally. And, and just actually moving <laughs> on to say decision making. Now, um, are there any thoughts you have about, you know, the, say sort of system one and system two and that Daniel Kahneman, his sort of work on that. And some people I've talked about, they say that, okay, you can, um, it, it depends on the environment you're in. Um, and I've, I've heard of this term like kind and wicked environments where you have predictable um, patterns and where others you don't have predictable patterns. And I remember from playing sports that, I, I played to a relatively high level. And actually when I played my best, I wasn't thinking because I, I sort of had all the practice before and then I, I was looking for patterns. But then when I saw something that wasn't you know, from my past experience, it was at that point you have to change. I mean, when, you, when you're thinking about decision-making, uh, what, what do you think, uh, Frederica? Um, well, first I, want to, first I want to hear what sports you, you did. <laughs> well, but, uh, 
I, I, I play cricket. Um, yeah. I, cool. yeah, so I, I, I played to, um, uh, you know, relatively high level and I actually got paid to play in one match. It was at the lowest level possible. So technically I'm a professional athlete with a very short career, uh, but, <laughs> but, but I was with people who are much more successful. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so cool. So I think research to go, you know, to link to that athlete experience, most athletes, don't think and research shows that when they have to analyze a game, their first gut instinct was the right one. And when they think too much, they get worse. Yeah. And so I think it all comes down to whether you're an expert or not. When you're an expert, your gut leads you in the right direction. If you're not an expert, it could just be in bias. So because in our brain, we have basal ganglia, which is where our experience is stored, where pattern are stored and recognized. So it's important to understand in which field you are the expert, then you should trust your gut and in which field you are not the expert. And that's when you should do a lot more effect searching, you know, a little bit more analytics, thinking harder will lead to results. While if you're an expert, thinking less will be better for you. I see that with many executives, they often tell me that when they not prepare their speech, the speech gets better because I've done it so many times speaking to the people in let's say a town hall meeting or something. Of course, you want to know what you want to tell people. Of course, you don't want to get on stage and then just say, oh, I didn't prepare. But if you have it in your mind and if you've done it before and if you have a clear strategy of where you want to go, sitting down for hours writing a speech is not going to be necessary for you can just speak from your heart. So I think it's important to understand when you're the expert and then you can just improvise and when you're not, and then you need to put a little bit more of that work in. And also when you lead people, we need to become a bit more appreciative, I think, of gut feelings and intuition, because right now we always think, you know, we need to test everything. Everything needs to be fact-based. I get that. There's, you know, AI, analytics, big data. I'm not against it. I love statistics. It's not, I love math. Um, I get it. It's just that very often people have a gut feeling. They know what they want. And then they ask the right experts to give them a model that just justifies what they just wanted to do. So very often we have what Gerd Gigorenza calls defensive decision-making. People use consultants and models to model something they want to achieve. I can model you anything. You know, you just have to plug in the assumption, assumptions and it will give you either that, you know, it will give you the desired result, so to say. So very often I think there's a mistake that people trust the numbers because they don't understand that the numbers can be faked so easily and manipulated um, as with statistics. So I think we need to be a bit more appreciative of gut feelings and intuition and people could be more honest and say, I have a gut feeling that this is what I want to do rather than saying I hired these 20 consultants and they told me that their data model tells me that this is the right thing to do. No, that, that, that's brilliant. And, and Frederica, I know we're coming up to the end of our time and I don't, I, I, you're obviously a very busy person. So I, I'd just like to, one final thought, and this is n- nothing to do with careers or work, but do you have any um, neuroscience insights into great personal relationships? Obviously you've done very well. You're married with five children. Any thoughts from a, either your personal experience or a neuroscience uh, uh, hat on? Well, I would say you need to find somebody who's compatible with your neurosignature. 
So when I met my husband on our very first date, I gave him a personality test. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and I passed? kind of, he passed and I knew it was very compatible with mine. And um, well, I knew that before, but anyhow, so I, I was the same as the scientists I just accused of, you know, tweaking their data. Um, but of course, I think it's important to choose somebody who's naturally in sync with you, who you don't have to change. I think if you're in a relationship and you're constantly thinking, I wish he changed this, I wish she did this differently, you can't try to change each other. I think that's a recipe for disaster. It's good if you choose somebody who, where you can just be yourself and where also you can let the other person be their, themselves. That sounds a bit like, you know... Um, very cheesy, but I think it's it's important. It doesn't mean that you have to be the same on everything, but more like accepting the other person as they are rather than trying to change them. I think that's important. Cool. No, that, that, thanks for that. Uh, and, and finally, Friedrich, I'd like to give my guests a chance to uh, give a shout out to anybody who's helped them in their lives or careers. Um, could be personal. It could be work. Um, is there anybody who you'd like to mention? Well, I'm immediately thinking of my speaking agent, Edna Jones, at Speaker Ideas. Um, she's a very introverted person. I, she's going to be like, oh, did you mention me? <laughs> but because she's behind the scenes. But, you know, she's so she's always been in my camp and always created just the right opportunities for me. So, for example, just recently I said, I think I want to take a break from in-person speeches at the moment. I just want to do virtual. I love virtual. As you can see in my studio, I've been yeah, like, tinkering cool. with different cameras and I fall in love. She was just like, okay, you know, that's great. So I love working with people you can just trust and who just understand you and who make your life easy. And um Edna is just such a person. So yeah, here, this is to you, Edna. <laughs> Fantastic. Ho hopefully she won't be too freaked out. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but Friedrika, yeah, thank you so much for um, spending the time with us today. And I'm sure the listeners, um, when this goes out, will get so much out of it. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Uh, and obviously your book is coming out on, is it Tuesday, October the 11th? Is that correct? It's October 11th, yes. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Well, yeah, wishing you luck. I've, I've loved reading it. Um, it's been a great read. Uh, and I'm sure everybody out there will, you know, definitely get uh, a lot from it. Uh, and I'll, I'll make sure, Friedrich, all your uh, social media links and things are on the show notes so people can, you know, get in touch with you. And obviously you're on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Um, is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. YouTube, Instagram, but I would say LinkedIn is my main place. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was fabulous. I, I understand why your platform is growing so quickly <laughs> because you're a great host. Thank you. So thank you so much for having me. Brilliant. Th thank you, uh, Friedrika. Have a good rest of the day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.